What is critical care medicine, and why would one choose to go to take care of intensive care unit patients? And how does a physician burn out and then recover? The answer to those and other important questions in this episode of Essential Partners. Our guest today is Dr. Matt McCambridge. Matt serves as Senior Vice President and Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer at Lehigh Valley Health Network. Previously, he was Chief of the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and also notably has served admirably in a role as President of the Medical Staff of Lehigh Valley Health Network. Welcome, Matt. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Matt, a lot of us know that you're a local boy and have heard you describe actually seeing the transformation of what is now the sprawling Cedarcrest campus. Tell me about your your origins here in the Lehigh Valley. Well, sure. So I'm one of seven children. When I was four years old, my dad was uh, got a job at Bethlehem Steel. And uh, I'm sixth of seven kids. When I was about nine years old, they started building the Cedarcrest campus. There was a big farm there. That's all there was. Some of my earliest memories are riding around. Back then, they didn't have walls all around it or, or uh, fences. We used to ride our bikes around, all the dirt mounds and what have you. All of my brothers and sisters went to St. Thomas More, all seven of us. We all went to Central Catholic. Uh, five of the seven of us are still home. And uh, I went away for a little while I, to pay for medical school. I went into the Army, and that's where I'm, that's, I'm from here. I'm an Allentown kid. Great. We're lucky to have you back with us in so many ways with all that you do for us. When was it that you made that decision? I think I want to be a physician. And was there local influence that contributed to that decision? Sure. So when I was in high school, uh, I played on the football team. I ended up getting into Johns Hopkins, went down there to go to school, but also to play football. And one of my friends from high school was in a, was in a very bad car accident. That was my first exposure to our trauma unit and um, intensive care unit medicine. And I also lived in the neighborhood uh, right near the hospital where all the doctors lived. So Dr. Scarpino, Dr. Scarlato, Dr. Olix, uh, Dr. Gallagher, they, I've been exposed to, Dr. Koharchik, they all kind of lived in my neighborhood. And it was kind of that experience I had um, visiting my friend and then also um, being around doctors, the Lehigh Valley Hospital doctors all my life that kind of influenced me. So I changed my major from biomedical engineering to biology and ended up going and getting in medical school. So you've given us a part of what I was going to ask you next, but just to amplify on it and continue it, what has been your journey? So we know you're a graduate, uh, a proud graduate, I mm-hmm. hope, of Central Catholic here in Allentown, mm-hmm. and you then went to the prestigious Johns Hopkins mm-hmm. for your collegiate undergraduate education. So tell us a little bit about that college education and mm-hmm. experience, and then how it continued on right through your military service. Sure. So um, I started college a long time ago in 1984 and spent four years at Hopkins. It was definitely a period of transition for me. I just had a summer research scholar with me all summer, and I, I had to learn how to study, and uh, it was definitely a different kind of environment. So I was at Hopkins for four years, ended up, last couple of years, ended up doing pretty well, uh, ended up getting myself in medical school, but by the time I finished college, I didn't have any money. And at that point, I started looking around for uh, ways to pay for medical school. And that's when I discovered the Army Health Professional Services Scholarship. So I was fortunate enough to get into Georgetown for medical school and get the Army Scholarship all on basically the same day. It was like July 22nd, 1988. 
and uh, got into both of those, and then that's how I went to medical school on an Army scholarship. And, and then for your graduate medical education? Then from Georgetown, I, because I signed up for the Army to go to medical school, I owed the Army um, at least four years after I was fully trained. And you have to apply through the military. So I applied to the Army programs, which were places like Walter Reed and uh, San Antonio and, and back then San Francisco and Hawaii, and ended up going to Walter Reed. And I did three years of internal medicine residency there, two years of pulmonary, one year of critical care. So I did six years of training from 92 to 98. And then at that point, I was finally an attending physician. I was 32 years old, finally an attending physician. And the Army sent me to Fort Bragg in North Carolina for five years. So I was uh, one of two pulmonologists for 300,000 people in, at Fort Bragg. That's where I really learned how to be a doctor. So let me just follow up. You mentioned, and I'm fairly certain it is still the case, that if you receive a scholarship from the military, that it's required that you first apply to their graduate medical education programs. And then potentially, if you're not awarded one of those positions, you can go out service into the civilian sector. What was your perspective upon the quality of experience that you had training at Walter Reed and in the Army? Oh, it was absolutely excellent. Uh, the Walter Reed at the time was a 700-bed hospital right in the heart of D.C. We used to get people um, from all over the world. The Army was about a million people back then. Unfortunately, we were fighting a couple of wars, uh, so that was good for training, unfortunately. And also we had just people from all over the world flying in on these AeroVacs that would fly land every, every Tuesday night. And there would be literally 100 uh, service members. And between Bethesda and Walter Reed, the Air Force Hospital, they would all be divided up. We got the bulk of the patients at Walter Reed. It was incredible training. Yeah, it was really a great way to start. In a little bit, we're going to be talking about your personal experience with the vexing problem of burnout. Sure. And I know we want to spend a significant amount of time, rightfully, on your introspective diagnosis of that and your recovery from it. But fortunately for all of us, and especially for you, you've recovered. So now your life is presumably in great balance. What do you like to do when you're not working as hard as you do work? Well, I have hobbies now. So six or seven years ago, I didn't, didn't have much in the way of hobbies. So I have uh, beehives in my backyard. I have chickens in my backyard. I bake sourdough bread every Saturday morning. And that process starts uh, earlier in the week with the starter and um, the way that whole process is. I love to, I still love to exercise. I meditate every day. And we can talk about more about that later. Every day I meditate and I try to fit some yoga in there. But those are my main hobbies right now. I still work an awful lot, but um, I've been much more intentional about not just working all the time. So continuing along that line, Tell us about your family and your family life and your church life. Sure. So my larger family, I'm one of seven kids. There's four boys and three girls. My mom still lives right off of Fish Hatchery Road. And then I'm um, married to Meredith, my wife Meredith, for we just celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. So we got married kind of young. I was 23. She was 22, right out of uh, college. Then we have three kids. We have Gordon, Louise, and Jack. Gordon's 26. Louise is 24, Jack is 22. They're all engineers, two mechanical engineers, one structural engineer. And um, Gordon lives in China, started a business, lives in China. Louisa lives in New York City, which is great for us, and Jack lives in California. Um, no grandkids yet. And my church, so I was born and raised Catholic, but for the last 20 years or so, uh, by marriage, I'm actually a Presbyterian, which my mom has, has gotten over. She's, uh, 
She's she's okay with that now. Yeah, I think when you're six or seven kids, my mom is just happy I'm going to church at this point. So we we are we were Presbyterians. And we go to church over in Bethlehem. What was the uh, aggregate dollar total of the tuition for those three engineers? <laughs> $750,000 for those three kids. So you'll be working for a little while longer. <laughs> yeah, there's no, reti- no, no retirement anywhere near in sight for me. <laughs> Great. What are your favorite movies, books? What type of music do you like listening oh, to? Oh, wow. So I, I'm a, I like kind of goofy movies. So uh, I like Forrest Gump. It's probably my best all-time movie, but there's a movie called Napoleon Dynamite. That's uh, a wonderful, wonderful movie. And, and then, like, just get a feel for how I think. Parks and Recreation uh, on Netflix is uh, kind of anything by Michael Schur, the, the writer and the Saturday Night Live guy from Harvard, anything that he does. I don't watch much in the way of TV, but I am a kind of a Netflix guy. The Good Place, the new show on uh, the NBC show with Ted Danson on Netflix is also a Michael Schur uh, show. So those types of, uh, those types of things. I, I like, uh, you know, goofy, funny movies. I like to laugh. So I have to interject that your favorite movie is Forrest Gump. Mine is Braveheart. <laughs> and that says a lot about our relationship right there, just exactly. in two favorite yeah. movies. So you chose the field clinically of mm-hmm. critical care, doing that one extra year of fellowship beyond your pulmonary mm-hmm. fellowship and have taken care of a lot of sick people in intensive care units over that period of time. What is critical care, and, and why was it you were drawn to that field over any other? Sure. When I was a third and fourth year medical student, I loved the idea of, uh, with God's help, being able to take a person who uh, may very well be near death and um, bringing them back to a normal life. And I love the concept of there's people out there that without, um, again, God's help, with all, but all of us also working together that may not be here today without particular systems and processes in place. And training and huge teams of people that get them through it. So a good story would be, uh, I, I remember a 21-year-old young woman who had toxic shock syndrome, and she was so profoundly critically ill. And we worked very, very hard on her uh, for a long period of time, for a week or so, got her through the whole thing. I can't even remember her name, but it's cool to think that she's living. I'm sure she's married now. She probably has kids. And uh, I like critical care because you can impact generations of people. And uh, I'll say, though, that just to be transparent, there's a lot of um, that's not true for most cases, particularly in medical critical care. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of hospice work. But occasionally, I think what draw me to it initially and still draws me to it now is there's, uh, there's these occasional cases that are really uh, impactful. You can make a difference. I like being able to make a difference in general. Wonderful. We'll be right back after this important message from Lehigh Valley Health Network. Smith & Watson Worldwide. What do you think? Has a nice ring to it, right? Not bad. Not bad. But check this out. Watson & Smith Worldwide. See what I did there? Yeah. uh, Future business partners. Ready? Ready? Go get it, boy. That's a good boy. Loyal partners. Ah, this is the ticket. Oh, it is, is it? Beautiful night. Got my best girl with me. Although, you know what could make it even better? Let me guess. Some mint chocolate chip. Bingo. Partners since the beginning. Throughout life, you have many different partners. Shouldn't you have one for the most important aspect of life? Your health. Whether you need serious clinical care, a routine exam, or tips on how to live a fuller, happier life, one of the best health networks in the country is never more than a short drive away. Lehigh Valley Health Network, 
Your health deserves a partner. Learn more at lvhn.org. Welcome back to this episode of Essential Partners, where I have the pleasure of speaking with our Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer, Dr. Matt McCambridge. Matt, we alluded before the break on your own experience with the vexing problem that we know is with probably fully half of our physician colleagues, burnout, the issue of resilience. In your particular instance, and you've been remarkably transparent about this, it literally impacted your physical health as well as your mental well-being. Tell us about how you devolved into that state, how you recognized it, and how you were able to recover from it. So just let me just tell you my story. So when I was 44, I had just, I was president of the medical staff, chairman for critical care. I had a very busy critical care practice and also an office practice. And my lovely wife and three kids, it was a very, very busy life. I was probably working somewhere between 65 and 75 hours a week. And the content of the work between being an intensive care unit doctor and kind of the principal for the medical staff, the content of the work was uh, stressful. So in the middle of January uh, in 2011, I caught, uh, I had a very bad cold. And I was coming through the cold, but coughing like crazy. I was down in the basement lifting weights with my oldest son. And I um, noticed that my heart was irregular. So I went upstairs, got my pulse ox out of my pocket. And sure enough, my heart rate was like 150. My heart rate is normally in the, in the low 50s. So I said to my wife, uh, does that look normal to you? And she's a teacher, right? So, And she said, no, that doesn't look normal to me. So I drove myself to the emergency department. Sure enough, I was an AFib. They admitted me to the hospital. A long story short, I had the swine flu. And, but the next day, they had to cardiovert me back to normal. And I kind of got the opportunity in, in, you know, lying in the hospital bed that night and then in the next couple of days at home to kind of think about what their real big picture was. So over the next two years, I went in and out of AFib 19 times. And in addition to the AFib, there was quite a bit of anxiety and a little bit of depression. And at that point, I was seeing, I saw a million doctors. I saw a ton of cardiologists. I had every test known to man, including a cardiac MRI. Everything was coming back normal. And yet, because I was having such trouble with AFib, I was set up for a cardiac ablation. I was about six days away from the cardiac ablation. And I was eating dinner at home. And I looked at my wife and kids and I said, there's nothing wrong with my heart, but I think there's something wrong with my head. So I then um, I started a journey. I started being a patient of Susan Wiley, one of our psychiatrists, and um, she and I would talk once a month for a couple of years. I enrolled in the mindfulness program that the hospital puts on and actually did it with 30 community members. I was sitting there, you know, in my tie. It was an interesting experience. I learned how to meditate. I, um, I had to change what I was doing, so I couldn't be Superman anymore. I couldn't work night shift and do all my other jobs and try to keep myself going with caffeine and working 70 to 80 hours a week. So I had to come off, one of the most difficult things for me was coming off of night shift. So I had to come out of the tele-ICU and that was really important. So I made some work changes and I also was a, a triathlete at the time. Um, so I wasn't, when I wasn't working, I was out running 10 miles in 70 minutes. So to make a long story short, I just had to back down on everything. And I changed, made some dietary changes. So with meditation, developing hobbies, trying to live life with uh, aware rather than unaware and responsive rather than reactive. I think right now I'm in a, like an entirely different place. 
And so I could, would say to my colleagues, there's a lot of my colleagues, every time I tell my story, I get um, texts and um, people want to talk. There's a lot of us out there. And I would say that you have to, you have to make some changes. Once you get through that um, and make the changes, it's much, much better on the other side. And I've become a much better doctor and husband and father um, through this whole thing. And, uh, in a weird way, the AFib and all of it, uh, AFib and the anxiety is like the best thing that happened to me. A great story, and I appreciate your sharing it. I can't help but comment that you clearly had above average resiliency when confronted by that burnout picture and probably an incredible structure around you with Meredith and others so that you were able to do the remarkable pullback from it. We know that many of our colleagues don't have that, and you and I and many of our other senior leaders have rightfully pledged to make this a topmost priority so that those who can't do what you were able to do are able to be helped to become functional and fulfilled once again. So you recovered from it, and so you're an incredibly successful high-achieving physician in critical care. You're now a respected member of the LVHN leadership community, and so you decide to take a risk and a change. You decide that you're going to vigorously pursue quality and patient safety. Mm -hmm. So why, at the top of your game, did you decide not to be Brett Favre and continue until you couldn't do it anymore, but to do something new? You can make a difference on an individual level with patients but you can also make a difference on a much broader and larger level when you get into physician leadership. I learned that when I was president of the medical staff, that by making changes to certain um, processes or structures or programs or building something, you can really impact a lot of lives. That's what drew me to, uh, at this phase in my life, is I'm kind of at the point in my career where I want to make a difference. I want to um, help people on a broader scale, not just one at a time, but maybe thousands or tens of thousands or maybe many, many people at a time. I think that's kind of how I want to lead the rest of my professional life. I have a broader view. How stressful was it and how did you manage pursuing a master's degree at mid-career while still working full-time? The content of the work um, made it such that it wasn't entirely stressful. I was very, I, I like to learn. I like to learn new things. It was in, in an area where I, I picked. I have a lot of docs coming to me saying they're interested in getting an advanced degree. And I think my first question is, well, what are you interested in? Don't get an advanced degree unless until you know what you're interested in. And for me, uh, this unique master's degree was kind of resonated with my soul, like, uh, like who I am. And it was, so it wasn't that, wasn't that bad. I had to fly out to Chicago eight or nine times to spend a quite a bit of time out at Northwestern, but it was, uh, I was also at a period of my life when my baby just started college. So there wasn't like, um, it was a good time to be able to do it too. So despite your many accomplishments, you're just in your early 50s. What do you see that you want to do with the rest of your career and your life? Well, I think above all else, I still want to be um, a good son, a good husband, a good father, um, a good community member. And uh, I think those things are really important. I think professionally, I still continue to want to have the broadest impact I possibly can. Um, I think I'm very, my, my current job is like the best in the world. Uh, so I think where I'm looking towards is how can I be of help to not only the people in the community, but physicians and nurses and uh, other types of colleagues, maybe at my age or maybe even a little younger than me. 
um, serving as, as a, maybe potentially a mentor, talking about things like anxiety, depression, burnout, those types of things. Yeah, that's where my head is at right now. I, I just want to make um, I just want to make a difference uh, as I'm as I'm going out the rest of my life. A great answer, and let me suggest one minor edit: a, a great future grandfather <laughs> as well. <laughs> Thank you. So here's your last question: If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh wow. Oh, I hope he says, you did a good job. Well done, come on in. I hope he welcomes me in, says I did okay. I strongly suspect he will. I'd like to thank Dr. Matt McCambridge, Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer, friend, and colleague, for being with us on this episode of Essential Partners. <laughs>